1: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform Zencaster has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to The Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 164 for May 22nd, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about sexually charged words in the field and must-have gear items for new archaeologists. So make sure your REI account is up to date because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is West Coast Bill in California. Good morning. And East Coast Bill in Maryland. Hi there. Well, good afternoon. That's right. That's right. It's CB squared today. Chris and two Bills. All right. So, or WB squared. (laughs) Webby. I don't know. Either way. (laughs) B squared. (laughs) All right. So we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about today. Uh, Some things that that, that Bill White has been bringing up about, uh, you know, field schools and equipment. And we've had some discussions on Facebook. However, we like to address listener emails when they come in, uh, especially if they're relevant to to past shows. So I got permission from this listener to read their email uh, on the podcast here. Now, I told him I wasn't going to use his name, even though he said we could. But the name is not important. I don't care who it was. The content is important. So... What this listener is referring to is the podcast we did. I can't even remember the episode number, but it was it was at the SAAs. we recorded it, and uh, it was about uh, you know the whole Me Too thing that happened at the SAAs and some other things like that. Well, uh, I'll just I'll read I'll read part of this. I'm not going to read the whole thing because there's some stuff in here I don't even want to read. But it sounds like he's a, an older gentleman. He said he's 70, 70 years old. Um, you know, worked for a long time. Now he's not. He just did some stuff uh, back in the day, but uh, I, he's not an archaeologist now, it sounds like. But anyway, he says during your podcast, uh, one of your highly indignant guests, so indignant he could barely talk at times, used the term "fucked up twice while denouncing sexual harassment. I don't think I've ever heard anything as hypocritical in my life to use the single most sexually charged word in the English language to describe your disdain for sexual harassment. What can I say? He's good. He says here, I know what you're going to say. Oh, shucks. It's how we talk, just slang. And then he talks about some slang they used back in the sixties through the eighties, which is not good. He says to keep it up. You guys don't have a clue what's coming down the road with this me too movement. Yes. I know in the field, the women talk the same way that doesn't make it right. It's only a matter of time until you realize what you were doing. He said in my day using fuck around women was a test. If they didn't flinch, it was a tacit approval that they were easy. Oh, man, that seems hard to believe. Um, truthfully, we didn't talk that way around women most of the time, only when drunk. I am betting the same condition exists today. You just won't admit it. Okay. So he he goes on to talk about a few more things, but what do you, I mean, I, my personal thoughts on this are that particular word has a number of meanings and, you know, not that we shouldn't have said that. I mean, it, it was Doug and, and, you know, go back and listen to the show and I've shown Doug this email. I don't know. What do you guys think about this? Should should Doug not have used that word to describe his displeasure and disgust with the situation? Because you know that's that's what he did. That's the, that's the context in which she used it in. You know. So what, what are your thoughts on on this email?
2: Well, oh, I think that uh, you know, doesn't the show have a ratings level, right? So if we say things <laughs> beyond a certain level, uh, we can't actually post it on. Uh
1: so here's the thing. There's a it's a self-imposed rating system. And it's basically not even a rating. It's either you're clean or you're explicit. And if you say you're explicit, then you get the little E tag on your um, on your iTunes. Uh, Not on just an episode. I mean, you can put it per episode, but if you put on too many episodes, it's going to have it on the entire show. And the problem with having the explicit rating is your show can now not be downloaded in certain countries. Like there's certain countries that have banned explicit podcasts through iTunes specifically. And that makes it so you you limit your audience. Now, maybe those are smaller countries. Typically, they're Asian countries. From what I've heard, they just they just ban explicit podcasts. Also, a lot of Muslim, uh, predominantly Muslim countries ban explicit podcasts as well. They're not even visible in the store. So that limits it. And the, pro- the thing is, though, nobody's policing it. Uh, Apple will only do something if somebody complains and says, hey, my five-year-old listened to this and they said a bad word. And you know, if enough people do that, Apple will be like, listen, you're explicit, so we're going to put that rating on you. And we don't swear very much on the podcast, so I actually don't even delete it out. And I know that most of our audience probably doesn't care either. So I just I just kind of don't worry about it. So from a rating standpoint, it's kind of off the table. Um, but I'm just wondering, from a pure discussion standpoint, is the word sexually charged inherently or is it related to context?
2: Well, I mean, I guess it depends on the audience and everything, but I mean, I have kids and the guy is right that we shouldn't be talking like that. Uh, you know, just generally walking around with, uh, you know, words just flowing right out of our mouth for the main part. We don't, but I think he's right when we need to curb our speech a little bit. I mean, some folks, End up just talking like sailors out in the field, just because they're, <laughs> you know, not in a building or something like that, and every single word is a curse word. Mm-hmm. And it makes you sound ignorant, and it makes you sound like, to like the guy saying, disrespectful. So yeah, we probably should watch what we say.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I see really, th- well, at least two things going on here. uh One is sort of the context. I mean we are in, in the business of archaeology of anthropology context matters and the context in which it was used there was in discussion of the situation going on with the, the continuing, uh, even at the time of this recording, continuing fallout uh, of the situation that occurred at SAA this year. And mm-hmm. frankly, in, 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 an, in sort of an explicit uh, emotional way of putting it, it is effed up uh, mm-hmm. what was going on there and um, to sort of sugarcoat it otherwise can in some ways lessen the sort of gravity of of what's what's occurring here right now. What this sort of movement and pushback is. We have this organization which is trying to adapt to a changing sort of demographic of their of their uh, membership, while at the same time being first and foremost concerned about protecting their institution, mm-hmm. um, while they're actually people you know uh, actively being uh, affected. Uh, by this so it, it is an emotional thing and, and you know I have no problem with people expressing their frustration in an emotional manner now sort of the other part of his email though things goes down in sort of more of like language is gatekeeping which absolutely happens in the field it, um, happens in every uh, realistically every human interaction there is mm-hmm. but within archaeology like CRM archaeology you have things like you know will use certain it, it can be as benign as will use certain jargon? Um, and, you know, as a sort of a test to see if you are up with a jargon to see whether or not you're in the in group or the out group, um, mm-hmm. you know, we'll just throw out STPs without saying shovel test pits and see if you catch on. <laughs> um, or we'll say CRM all the time and never explain what it is. Yeah. It, so it can be as benign as that, but it could also be other tests as he put in there of, uh, you know, dropping a- explicits, pushing boundaries of like, whether, you know, a- offensive or sexually charged or sort of other triggering type, whether it's political, religious, sexual, um, sort of these triggering type things. One, it's it's a way of sort of feeling people out when a lot of people don't know each other. You, you try to feel out what's the appropriate group level. That's that's always what's most important. Um, I, I'm not one for sort of these sort of blanket ban type of deals. Um, I think everything is contingent. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's a feeling part about, it. you know, if you're with a group that doesn't care for cussing, then don't cuss. Um, uh, if you're with a group that cussing is sort of a cathartic thing to help them get through a day, then go like sailors. Um, as long as everybody is on board, uh, that, and that's always a hard one too. <laughs> who's, who's the one who's yeah. the sheepishly going? Yeah. Um, but really deep down, they're like horrified.
1: And, and here's the thing, too. I don't think the, the listener was saying that it wasn't an emotionally charged situation and that we should sugarcoat everything that happened. I think he was just objecting to the actual word that was used, saying that we need to swap that word out. Because what, what you're you're kind of proving my point, East Coast Bill, is that it, it the word is based on context. You know what I mean? Like it in that context, Even though we were discussing a Me Too situation, it wasn't used in a sexual context. You know, like, you know, go f yourself (laughs) or something like that. I mean, that's a very different context than saying something's effed up. You know what I mean? And and I think I think the word's taken on different meanings through the years. And maybe in the '60s, that's all it meant. You know what I mean? I I mean, I don't know. So I think he's just opposed. I think he's just opposed to the to the choice of word, not the choice of emotional impact.
0: Yeah. No, I I definitely think there's some sort of like cultural baggage he's, he's sort of bringing with him I and mean, we, we all do we mm-hmm. all bring the cultural baggage of stuff sure um he's he's coming from at least from the email i've never met the man so i, I don't know him and I'm, yeah, i apologize maybe. if i'm uh, overly generalizing uh, this but uh, it appears to be it's, it's 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 a it's from a culture where you, you you have to say certain things in front of a lady um mm-hmm. it, it's sort of that that sort of like sort of the patriarchy of, of, of the lady, like men can do men's stuff over here and women can do women. And when men are interacting with women, they must treat them like they must be gentlemen and, and treat them like ladies. Um, right. and, and that sort of idea. And that's that's a cultural thing to a very specific time and place and frankly, group of people. Um, and that's that's changing, has changed, always has been uh, changed. So. Um, I think within that group he's discussing, it probably absolutely is. So I'm not going to discount his idea that this is an absolute, you know, a a triggered, uh, you know, offensive word uh, within his context. Um, I just Mm -hmm. think there's different contexts now. And especially since, you know, the 1970s, the uh, use of cussing in the United States has sort of changed. Um, It has become more part of the common language. So that it's decharged, but like other other words, we're not going to say on here. Uh, some of them have been moved into certain more common phrases within certain groups, uh, but it's still not acceptable in sort of a larger population. Um, right. So. So I guess I'm going around in circles going, he's got a point, <laughs> well, but I still want to cuss anyway.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: no, I mean, feel, f- right. feel free to curse as long as people who aren't getting offended are around, right? And as long as it's not on the podcast so we don't get banned from, uh, you know, countries that don't want us to be on there because we're explicit, right? So uh, right. I, the, the listener has a point, a really valid point, too. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I keep coming back to it. And we can get across everything we want to say without cursing so then when we yeah. curse it actually has more impact right just like doug was saying we've done more than 160 shows and we don't we've cursed you know less than 20 times on all those hours of recording so when doug says that it does have impact that is how he's and that feeling. Was, and he, you can hear in his voice he feels that way and he's yeah. using those words and he's doing the impact that that's why he said that stuff
1: and that's likely the first time Doug's ever cursed on the show, to be honest, which gives it that much more impact. All right. Well, I appreciate the email. And I think what, I think that we did learn something from it. I'm glad that we put it out there. Um, please send in your thoughts about anything that we're doing out here. And, you know, going back to something you just said, Bill. You know, sometimes it's, it's okay to curse if you're in the right environment, if you're in an environment where that's acceptable, and, and other people are accepting it. But the problem that we always have is, you don't always know if everyone around you is actually accepting it, especially the bigger the crowd, probably the fewer people you know, really well, and some people might just be going along with it. But inside, they're like, my God, this again. And then also on the podcast. It's not just about getting banned in other countries. We don't know who our audience is. I mean, to be honest, we don't know who's listening to this. We don't know when they're listening to it. They could be listening to it in 15 years. They could be, you know, a, a completely different audience than we expected. And we just, we just don't know. So we kind of have sure. to serve our entire audience.
2: And I'm glad you yeah. said that about audience because a couple of things. First of all, right on that we have a listener that's been around from back in the day that's listening to the podcast. I mean, most of the people that I hear that listen to the podcast you know, or, or students, or they're mm-hmm. our age, or whatever. So, I think it's sweet to hear that we have an audience of older folks, the folks that have been around for a long time, are listening. Yeah. Because the stuff that we talk about on the show are the kind of things that I really want them to hear. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so that that those are the people that we want to listen to this, so that they can recognize things have changed, right? So I appreciate the listener listening to the show and Mm -hmm. going beyond the field and all that stuff. I was always taught that cursing is a reflection of who you are as a person. It doesn't matter, archeology span or whatever. If you're the kind of person that wants to be associated with, you know, uh, a negative aspect, or you always want to be my mom and grandmother used to always call a gutter snipe. If you want Mm -hmm. to sound like you're a gutter snipe, which I'm pretty sure that's derogatory and I'm pretty sure that's bad to someone out there. Mm -hmm. But if you want to sound like that, go ahead and talk like that. (laughs) And I was always taught that, you know, there's proper English and then there's African-American English that you use when you're around African-American folks Mm -hmm. and you don't use African-American English around people who are not African-American because that's a reflection on all of us, right? So walking around in circles, cursing, that was a reflection on all the African-Americans, right? Saying things that are, you know, not proper English. Those are Mm -hmm. the kind of things that you say around a certain group, right? So you have a double consciousness, you code switch. And it's just like that in the field. If you're in the field and you are going to code switch and turn into the, you know, saying all this kind of stuff in the field and you're just going to let the cursing slur on and that's just the environment you're in, then, you know, I guess that's okay. But if you want to be viewed as the kind of archaeologist that does that kind of stuff, that's also a reflection on who you are. Now, when you hit your hand with a hammer, go ahead, let them go. That's why those words were even invented, right? But when it's time for you to just decide which beer you want or, you know, if you want to sit in the back seat or the front seat, it's not time for us to be using those words. So just be mindful of what you're saying, because that reflects on who you are as an individual.
0: Yeah. And yeah, and, and code switch was the word I was, I was in the back of my mind when thinking this is all about talking to different people and different <laughs> audiences and code switching.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it, it's also a reflection on, on not just who you are, but sometimes it's what you've been doing like for example when i got out of the navy i mean the navy i actually did curse like a sailor i was a sailor but...
2: well you were a sailor <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, That's and
1: let me why tell we you say
2: that because we were like you
1: i know and let me tell you the navy is very much integrated now with um men and women in different jobs but when i was in uh it was only certain squadrons because i was in a squadron in the navy it was only certain squadrons and certain divisions that were quote, getting women and getting women certified, basically, because and and that's a real thing, because they only had men's restrooms in some of these squadrons. So they actually had to create women's restrooms because they had like one bathroom and it was used by all the men. So they had to physically build women's restrooms. And for the Navy to actually have women in a squadron, you have to first have women in the officer corps because they need someone to go talk to. That's at least what the thinking was. They couldn't, you know, if you had a problem. With Maybe your coworkers that was, I don't know, related to the fact related to your gender. You need someone of your gender to go in and have a conversation with in private. And so you had to have women officers first, then you could have women enlisted. So point is, there were no women in my squadron, not when I was in. And so I was around men all the time when I was at work, basically. And I'll tell you what. The swearing was next level. I mean next level i mean i mean i've I've been on some archaeology crews where people swear a lot, but this was next level, like every other word, you know, and it was just I, if anybody's ever seen the 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 hidden track on this on the movie snatch on the DVD where they just it's the swear track they call it and they it's just it's just a super cut. That's like a minute and a half long of swear words. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what being in the Navy was like. (laughs) And and it was just, it was phenomenal. And you get out of that. And I swore like that when I got out and people around me were like, who are you? What's going on?
2: (laughs) Uh, They were like, Hey, by the way, are you a sailor? Uh, Yes, I (laughs) am. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Well, read this menu the way that it's written, not the way that you want it to sound in your head. Just read this menu. Don't read it out loud. Just think it.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I, and
0: I think this all highlights sort of one thing, one voice we're sort of missing uh, in this. And that's it's, it's a voice of, of, an, of a woman uh, in this. We have a man writing us, uh, us guys, uh, who are responding to it about another guy um, who used this word. And we're sort of missing. Uh, we're all talking about sort of these these sort of different kind of male reactions To women integrated into their spaces uh, and say, like, we can't say this because there's women here now. And like, what's, you know, unpacking that, like, what does that mean that language has to be policed by, by the gender on there? So that's a whole other topic. And unfortunately, today, we unfortunately don't have any women joining us today. Um, Mm -hmm. But if, if a woman who was just to uh,
1: elaborate and talk to us further about it, please email in and uh, we'd love to have you on the show. That is an excellent place to end this segment because I, I would love to hear someone's perspective on on really the, the F word. We'll just say that uh, in general, you know, what do you think about it? And I'd like to get multiple opinions on that. So write us in. Um, you know, we may discuss your email online. We'll ask you first, but we'll never give names, of course. And and just I'm interested in, in how you guys, um, or how you gals, how you women think about, um, think about this word and, and what it means to you when you hear that word, because I'll tell you what, there's a few words and I've heard women say this, like, like the C word. I'm not even going to say that one on the air. And some women like saying that because it, it, it's, it is a shock value. And then other women are just like a hundred percent offended by it. So anyway, all right, well, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and actually talk about field gear in a minute. Back in a second. off your first three months, or go to Z E N C A S T R and use the code CRMARC. All right. Welcome back to episode 164 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And the original intent of this episode, now the last two segments, was to talk about field gear. Uh, because Bill White, you put up some, some questions and we were talking about this, but you put some stuff up in some Facebook groups, you know, about different field gear questions. So uh, you sent us some links for some things that you put together uh, for field school and suggested field gear recommendations. So let's kick off the segment with your thoughts on this and, and why you put that stuff together. What what, sure, prompt, no. what prompted this?
2: Okay, yeah, no problem. Um, right now, uh, a lot of folks are getting ready to go to field schools. If you didn't know, if you were planning on going on a field school, you're kind of running out of time. <laughs> so finish that paper, get it turned in, and start applying to a field school, right? Yeah. So a couple of things about field school. Now that I'm at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, students need to get field school, you know, just not only for their own experience and everything, but just for their ability to be able to get work right so if you're going to be an entry-level archaeologist almost every company is going to want to know have you ever gone outside have you ever done field archaeology Uh, and if not have you ever worked in a lab and have you ever done lab work Mm -hmm. right so if companies are looking for folks to process artifacts they're going to look for folks who have actually ever worked in any kind of lab right for the entry-level position and if they're going to have folks going out and doing field work, they're going to want to try to find individuals who have ever gone outside and done archaeology. And I would say over 90% of us did uh, either lab work or field work or both. And a lot of times that happens in field school. So our, our first introduction to archaeology almost always – well, field archaeology almost always comes through some kind of field school while we're a university student. So the importance of that for archaeology students is – Is paramount, and for professors, we're doing the best that we can to try to provide those kind of field opportunities. And several things have come to mind recently with you know having access to field work. Mm -hmm. These days, most universities are not actually running uh, active field projects, and and there's a thousand reasons why. But a lot of it. Uh, revolves around the capacity for individual professors to have the time to actually do a field school. Wait, wait, right? wait. So there's a lot of work that wait, goes. Wait, wait, wait.
1: I thought that was yeah. kind of the deal with being an archaeology professor. Is you're, you're one of the things you're doing. And I mean, until you're like tenured and up there and you've been doing it for twenty years. But but the But you, you, <laughs> Bill. I, I thought that was kind of your deal. Like you kind of had to do field work and research to be a professor. Am I wrong on that?
2: No, you're not wrong <laughs> on that. But the way that we do the field work. There's two ways. We can either just go out there and do the research with other people who are also professors or graduate Mm -hmm. students or something like that, and we don't have to make any kind of field school. There doesn't have to be any kind of lesson. There doesn't necessarily have to be a whole bunch of extra permits and permissions and transportation all that other stuff. Or we can make it a field school where it's an actual class course, file that with the university, set up all the different pay systems, set up all the liability things, Build the entire handbook, do the orientation, try to get individuals to come and do the field school, and then manage all the students out there, right? So it's either you and me and Bill can go out and do work on a site and get data, or we can also invite your sister, your aunt, a whole bunch of other people with all their other stuff Mm -hmm. and have them come along too, right? So it's important for us to have these kind of courses, but you can see it takes almost an entire year to get the university set up to get the course number set up to build all the requirements so that they can actually pay to take a course. I mean, these it's not easy to put one of those together, right? And you can can also see that when you finish the project, it it doesn't just transfer over, right? So if we're working at one person's backyard doing a project or whatever, there's a certain level of permissions and everything through the university and liability uh, work that we have to do to set up a field school to do it in that person's yard. And if we go right across the other side of the fence to do excavations on the other side of the fence, we have to go through the entire yeah. system all over again. So if you have a sweet ranch where there's tons and tons of stuff mm-hmm. going on, you could dig there for twenty years, right? And there's there's schools that have done that. You know, a lot of universities that have long running field programs, that's how they did it. They set it up one time with the state parks or the you know, NPS or whatever property, and then they just come there and do it. Year after year after year, but if you want to move on to another place, then you have to start the entire cycle all over again. So yeah, we have to do field work and we need to collect data. But a lot of times we don't have time in you know four or five mm-hmm. years to go do work that would invite a bunch of undergrads. And you know that's in the wake. There's uh oh, I gotta look the place up when it's not my turn <laughs> to talk. But there's a organization that's kind of turned into the clearinghouse for field it's schools.
1: I IFR, IFR
2: IFR, IFR
1: Institute for Field Research.
2: So they've set up a system where they already, and they have all the stuff set up through I think Connecticut State, and then students through Connecticut State for any school that joins up uh, on their system. Right. So we could do a field school in that person's backyard and say, hey, uh, we're going to run it through you guys. You guys collect all the money, all the credits. Go have to go through any university stuff, and then you know if we want to go through the other side of the fence, then I just say, okay, we're going to go on to this other you know, property and IFR takes care of it all. So, you know, that's ended up being the middleman that's taken the, the heat mm-hmm. off of the professor. Who's not, you know, an occupational hygienist and not a lawyer. And, you know, does weeks and weeks to go through the university's legal system to just let people dig for four weeks out in the desert somewhere. So, you know, part of, part of it is the university, you know, making it difficult and for, you know, right. good reasons, right. The university is a huge corporation, if anyone falls down or someone says something mean, they turn around trying to sue that organization, right? And people do fall down and people do say something mean and people do do, you know, things that make people uncomfortable. So their recourse is to sue the university and the university is as a defense mechanism building up these walls mm-hmm. that it's difficult for us to get through. And then the other side is having the time to navigate that entire system because we've got to teach and we've got to go to meetings and we have to you know, uh, do our own research and everything. It's a normal, I'd say 50 to 60 hour a week job. So if just anyone who's out there listening, and I thought this too, when I was, it's, it's just like the same dream of owning your own company. Finally, when I make it to the top, I'll be the greatest. And you know, I'll change all of these things. Right. So if you thought that it was bad to work (laughs) 40 hours a week on a job in CRM, uh, there is no end to the work when you're a professor. Or, or a principal investigator, right? But in the principal investigator's uh, case, every single morning they wake up trying to think how are they going to feed their employees. In the um, uh, professor's case, they just don't sleep. Yeah, <laughs> There is no wake up. It's like 4 a.m., okay, start writing and start doing all this other stuff. Take care <laughs> of your family. Go to school. Write, teach, do all this other stuff, all these meetings and everything. You know, I guess my commute home counts as downtime, take care of dinner, and then start dealing with emails and other stuff, right? It's 10 o'clock at night and then wake up at 4 a.m. and do it over again.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Every day, Not there is no day off, right? Because your salary. So if you wanted to become a tenure-track professor, mm-hmm. just think about what your boss does and how she never sleeps and how she's constantly working, and that's going to be your life. Like and, and it doesn't end after tenure either, but I would have to say it's a great job because you know you're going to get paid every month. There's no sequestration for the university. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the one benefit. They'll, they'll be able to go to a hospital anywhere in the world yeah, and get yeah. help and that you'll get paid every month.
0: Regular salary at a delivered time. Uh, the the dream.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that's what you, that's good to say. That's the, that's what you get. All right. Whoa. So the field school thing. You know, it's one of those, everybody needs to have it on their resume. Because yeah. seriously, I have been advised, I, actually, I don't know any company that has let me hire someone without a field school to do field work. Like that's just not even, if if they touch that resume and it doesn't have a field school on it, then mm-hmm. almost every every company I've ever worked at, and I don't know a company that would let you get hired and work on a project without having a field school at least.
1: I've seen some exceptions with people who have had, you know, they've got 15 years in the field. If they've got 15 years of experience, I'm not actually looking to see if they have a field school. They have it. I mean, they probably did, but I'm not actively looking for it because they've got so much experience. So that's maybe one little thing.
2: Well, I mean, I'm talking about to get in entry level. So folks who are are undergrads right now that are going to finish with, you know, without 15 years, without even 15 years of college, right? So (laughs) folks who are just walking out the door with their diploma If they show up with an anthropology degree and no field school to do a field project and they don't know anyone there, your odds are so Mm -hmm. low. I mean, I don't even really know how to quantify that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, companies really want people who have field experience. Field school is important. In universities, it's tough for us to create the field schools. However, through all of this, a lot of places are creating field schools. And, you know, there there are long-running field schools with excellent instructors that are constantly going on. It's one of your, you know, your your obligation as a student is to try and get onto one of those. If your university is not doing something, get onto one at a, an accredited university. If you're uh, going to school in the United States, you need to make sure that the credits for whatever organization transfer over to your home university. Because sometimes they don't recognize it. So the key is make sure yeah. you're getting credits. Make sure it's, you know, some, you know, known organization, not just a company or something else. And then, you know, apply to get in, get in. Right. But then the question that, the reason why this 10 minute diatribe about all that stuff even happened is because <laughs> some of my students are going to field school and they were asking, what do they need to bring with them out there? Mm-hmm. So that's why I, I passed it over to you guys. And then, uh, like I said, spent a long, long time looking at all these different options, right? And there's a couple of reasons why I built this. I need to turn it into a blog post, but once again, I don't have the time right now. And the reason why I put yeah. all this stuff together is because some folks are seriously interested in doing archaeology. Some folks know that they're going to go into uh, uh, cultural resource management. And if you are going to do that stuff and you know that you're serious about this and you know this is going to be what you want to do, then and you're going to a field school then it makes sense for you to get quality stuff that you're going to take out into the field mm-hmm. but if you kind of don't know this is what you're going to do and you don't you know you're just trying it out and you're not a hundred percent confident or if you don't have any money then you need to have options as well so uh i guess the whole thing started off with what are the essential items that you need to have to go to a field school And then I spent a long time breaking it down into, you know, high end. If you have money and you're confident and you're going to do this for sure, you know, this is what you want to do, then get quality equipment. But if you don't know you're going to get, you know, if you don't know, this is what you're going to do, then just, you know, try to get by with stuff you have. But I guess I'll pass it over to you folks, because what are the, what are the things that you, that you take out into the field? What are the, you know, essential, absolutely must have things?
0: Well, I think, you know. First and foremost, it's all about where your field school is. Um, my field school was actually in the state of Maryland in Annapolis, and I was able to daily commute to it. Um, so issues like travel, gear and things like that weren't an issue. Um, so um, a nice, comfortable pair of shoes, jeans, something that you can get dirty every day, a T-shirt. And the most important thing was a trowel. Um, everything else was sort of provided there. So I bring myself in a trowel every day and uh, that, that would work. Uh, for and some gloves, but even with like with you know, most projects, you can probably get away with like the uh, knit gloves that are sort of dipped in latex by a three pack, they're like normally less than 10 bucks. Um, they'll break on you, but they're cheap. Um, and for what you're going to be doing, pushing dirt through screens, uh, even the expensive ones are going to break on you. But if, you know, if you're going overseas and you're going to be camping and things like that, then I mean, obviously your, your gear is going to change. But I think first and foremost, the one universal is probably the cliche, it's the trowel. Um, And I would say if you're in field school and you don't know whether or not you want to be an archeologist or not, just go down to the local hardware store and get whatever one you can find. That's the right size. So you're going to want the pointed trowel or the square trowel, you know, four and a half to five and a half inch. Um, Don't get, you know, the complete oversized. I've seen people at field school do that. They, They go, they're like, Oh, I just need to buy a trowel. And they come out with like this
1: seven or eight inch long masonry trowel. That's like, that's a little overkill. <laughs> but like you, like you said, Bill, it, it depends on where your field school is, too. Yeah. I mean, I've been out here in the Great Basin. And well, when I was on the East Coast, I used my trowel every single day. But when I was over here, when I'm over here on the West Coast, I haven't used my trowel but once in the last like eight years in the Great Basin. I mean, I don't even bring it into the field anymore. It does; It's not a part of my gear. It doesn't sit in my backpack. It's just weight uh, because we don't need it for pedestrian survey um, and any of the other analysis we have to do throughout the day. We just simply don't need it, and but I, so my must-haves. Be, I I am a big fan of universal gear. Um, I used to wear jeans uh, in the field. I used to wear, you know, some other types of shirts and things like that. But now I wear clothing that. I can pretty much wear anywhere in the world and I might need a couple other layers on top of it. I might need some layers below them, but the clothing is universal and I can wear it, you know, out in the evenings cause it's, it's decent clothing. Cause they, they, they stick around for a long time. They, they wash well, you can wash them in the sink and dry them overnight. I mean, it's just, uh, to me, clothing is, is probably the biggest one. And especially if you're trying to save money by universal clothing that you can use in a lot of different environments and, uh, and then water. Clothing and water, and once you solve your water problem, you'll you'll inherently solve your backpack problem too. Because, you know, when you solve the water problem, you're getting a backpack in the process. So those are my two must-haves that work anywhere. That if I was to think of something that works anywhere, it's water and clothing.
0: Oh yeah, Okay. water. Yes, water is definitely very important. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
2: The other thing for me too, because I'm an irregular sized individual slash bigger than (laughs) slash giant, big, big, (laughs) yeah, giant, right? So for me. Just knowing that when I get to wherever I'm at, and it doesn't matter where in the world, I could be next to the Carhartt factory and they still don't have a pair that fits me. <laughs> you got to get stuff that you like. You know is not is going to survive, and, yeah. and also know that there's no going back, right? So your backpack, my torso is long. You're not going to be able to just pop into a sporting goods store and grab another backpack. So mm-hmm. you know you need to put some thought into what you're actually. My shoes, my boots. I mean, I need to pay attention to what I'm bringing because. There, it's, it's not possible for me to get another pair of anything. I mean, I might be able to get like a t-shirt or something like that somewhere mm-hmm. else, but that's about it. But I used to work with a guy who just, you know, he went to the secondhand store, he'd get the, you know, stuff that wasn't stained up, but he cared nothing for his clothes and he would just rip right through all kinds of blackberries and all this other stuff because he could just go to the secondhand store and get a whole new shirt or, you know, three or four pairs of jeans for about $15 and just wear them out the next day. Well, that, I, I always had to watch my stuff because if it started getting ripped, it was just going to shred off my body and mm-hmm. there was nowhere for me to get any other clothes. So I guess, you know, where you're going to be at, that matters a lot too, but also what body shape you are. If you're really small, that's the same thing that's going to happen. They're not going to have a bunch of stuff that fits you if you're a small person. So make sure that you have stuff that fits your body.
0: And I would think like, like, you know, you mentioned backpack and I'm like, well, why is a backpack important? But I think also the type of work you're going to be doing, <clears throat> like read, read mm-hmm. before you sign up for this field school, find out what they're going to be doing. Um, are there going to be shovel tests? Are there, are there, is there going to be massive, you know, hiking and walking involved with it? Is this strictly six weeks in a block excavation right out the back of a, uh, you know, 18th century uh, plantation manor house, uh, in which case then your backpack can just be a crummy old uh, gym bag you have left in your uh, closet, uh, that's going to be good enough to get your stuff from the car to the, to the field and you're going to leave it there all day and pick it up and take it back home. Um, but if mm-hmm. you're hiking, you're going to need a, a fitted backpack and things like that. I mean, if you're going to be walking through uh, rough terrain and brambles um, you know, maybe looking into secondhand ripstop gear, uh, you know, I'm always a, a fan of the, either the duck cloth, uh, or ripstop gear. Duck cloth can be bad during the summer because it's thick and, uh, Mm. you will sweat and die in those things but yeah. it will keep you from being but it keeps you from being shredded alive uh, yeah, by the yeah. bramble so you, if, if you have to pick your poison which is more important uh with that so where you're at wow. matters shredded alive or die
1: that's what we'll end this segment with <laughs> those are your two choices
2: <laughs>
1: welcome uh, welcome archaeology. to archaeology <laughs> exactly oh my god all right so we're going to take a break our final break and we're going to come back on the other side and i want to find out bill's 16 must have items for a field school Auto parts. All right, welcome back to the final segment of the Sierra Mark Podcast, episode 164, and you know we're going to get into Bill's uh, Bill's must-have list here in a second, which I think is really good and on point. But I do got to mention something. You were mentioning Bill Ochter. You were mentioning you know the person that goes to the uh, you know the, the thrift store and just buys whatever because it's cheap, and then they rip it up. And I understand that a lot of people do that, but I I, I kind of feel like image sometimes is is really important to how we see ourselves in the field and how we see our field in general. And and our field has a very negative image, to be honest, of field technician and shovel bum life. And some people almost want, like, want to enhance that. And I always go back to a quote from, uh, from the movie American Beauty from the guy who played like the real estate king. And he's sitting there with this with the other woman he ends up cheating with and and she says, you know, oh I had no idea your life was in such a shambles or basically because his wife was leaving him whatever and he's like, well, in order to be successful, you have to project an image of success. And I've always kind of remembered that quote, and it's it is sort of right with your mindset that shabby chic sort of derelict um, you know, <laughs> uh look that we have. Like what is that? You know what I mean? I'm not saying we need to wear ties out in the field like my friend Richie Cruz <laughs> oh. does. Every Monday he wears a tie in the field, huh. but I mean, come on, have right some on. self-respect. You know what I mean?
2: <laughs> and it's just—it reminds me of a situation where I, I'd been doing CRM for a couple of years, and everybody prided themselves on. I only bring one pair of pants, and I just wear them until they <laughs> fall. In. I only bring one shirt, you know. And I, I've got one shirt. Well, I ripped a sleeve off of my shirt. I've only got one and a quarter. So yeah, all why these is that a point of pride? About- so I remember I was saying something about how the the black like the blackberries, whatever the hair or something like that on them over mm-hmm. time as you're working it just builds up on your pants and then <laughs> yeah. you put your pants on it's just itchy on the inside yeah the the vegetation has just gotten through the fibers and now they're in the fibers and it's totally itchy but you don't have another <laughs> pair of pants so you don't you know you just wear them right so by day five or whatever i remember mentioning something about man these pants are just so itchy and stuff like that and he goes well how many days have you been wearing them and i said it was another guy who i work with I said, well, I've been wearing them, you know, this is the fifth day or whatever. He was like, why are you wearing your clothes that many times? And I go, well, I mean, I don't want to spend a bunch of money on clothes. He goes, surely you can afford two pairs of pants and four shirts. (laughs) And after that, I kind of realized like, oh yeah, I can afford more than one pair of pants. And actually I have more than one pair of work pants, but I decided to leave them at home on purpose so I could talk about how filthy I actually am. And then after that, I just started you know, changing my pants every other day, actually washing my clothes at the hotel instead mm-hmm. of just leaving a bag of mud and filth to wash at my own house. I, I just, my whole thing changed. It, it wasn't that I bought better stuff. I just started to bring a shirt for every day or every other day and more than one pair of pants.
0: I think for a lot, for a lot of us, it's, it's a journey. I know for myself, like when I first started um, it was a t-shirt and jeans and a cheap pair of boots. Uh, mm-hmm. Within a month, I went out and bought a nice pair of, you know, $185 boots um, because that's absolutely, if you're going to be doing CRM, if you're going to be doing archaeology yeah. for the long haul, uh, Protect your feet. boots are, are very, very important. Within six months, I stopped wearing jeans because if if you're not familiar with sort of the East Coast and the Chesapeake area during the summer times, it's very humid. Mm -hmm. is a nice way of putting in. If you've ever worn a pair of jeans all day long in a very hot and humid environment, they weigh about 10 pounds heavier than when you started the day. So things like duck cotton, even though it traps heat in, it doesn't soak up the water the same way that jeans do. And ripstop is even lighter than that. I also learned over the years that uh, t-shirts don't really work well when you're out in the sun all day long, even though I'm I'm of a a deeper melanin, uh, but (laughs) the sun is still a thing. The sun will still beat you down no matter what you are. So um, during the summertime, you know, I can always tell the new bees from the the veterans because I'm out there in long sleeves, long pants uh, with a hat that covers up, you know, not only my head, but also some gear on my neck. Uh, So it evolves over time. I was the shabby it looked like I was a bum, the, you know, the first six months out in the field. And now, you know, I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a walking Carhartt hat. <laughs> uh, I've been
2: with people who get refused service at places because they're so they look so shabby. They won't even let them come inside to use the bathroom or whatever. I also have been uh, with people who were handed money just smoking a cigarette in front of the grocery store because they looked like they were so disheveled that they yeah. needed a dollar.
1: Yeah, most of these people that I've noticed that say they they uh, can't afford to buy other clothes or something like that are saying that while they're paying the forty dollar bar tab. So you know uh you, you make choices priorities right? man priorities <laughs> you make choices so bill <laughs> we're we're nearly over with this podcast let's sure. actually talk about your list <laughs> i, I want to see let, let's just list out the things that you have on this uh this one page that you've got in this word document that we have and maybe um we'll either link to your blog post when you get that out or maybe we'll see if we can not put this on the show notes but
2: sure sure
1: yeah let's hear, let's okay, hear the so, list
2: so like i said on the the list uh at number 1 is a trowel i mean And I even say the trial is a symbolic thing. It sets you Mm -hmm. apart. It shows that you actually are serious about this. Uh, When other archeologists see that you have your own trial, they know that you really want to do archeology span when you don't have a trowel, they know that you're just there to get credits, and you know that's why you're doing it, right? We should we Number- should have
1: to be required to to make our own trowels, like a Jedi, because you learn <laughs> forging and and wood cutting and uh, sanding.
2: <laughs> or spoiler alert: what's the? No, actually, it's not a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Infinity War yet, then you just you don't know yet. So yeah, or or like Infinity War, we can all open up a small uh, quasar and just forge our own <laughs> <laughs> exactly. trowel with that, whatever uh, galactic trowel.
0: And you get immediately yes. shunned out when you bring out the soldering iron because all proper f- uh, trowels must be forged. <laughs> That's not
2: uh, forged. That's right. Uh, forged no, no. with the energy of a star with whatever vibranium <laughs> that you've got laying around. <laughs> Some extra vibranium tools just to make a <laughs> nice trowel. Mine's
1: made okay. of valerian steel um, uh, a lot la of <laughs> Game of Thrones.
2: <laughs> oh, man. Mine's just a Marshalltown. <laughs>
1: all right so that was number one
2: (laughs) so the other these aren't really in order right Mm -hmm. and also like i said this is a list of people who actually want to do archaeology if you just want to get six credits that's cool You, you don't need to get all these things right so there is no there's no level of importance right so the second thing i had on there was a compass and and not just uh Not just a, you know, Boy Scout special $7, you know, nothing wrong with those. They're accurate enough for what they do, but one that has actual declination changing. If you have a compass and a trowel out there, uh, most archaeologists, most of the people running the project probably won't even have their compass with them. Mm -hmm. They'll probably be relying on some GPS gear or something else or a grad student to do it, right? So if you show up to field school and you have a quality compass, well, not only that, but you can use it later on. I mean, you could, the trowel is probably going to sit in a box somewhere. You're not gonna be using that all the time. But if you do outdoor stuff or hiking or anything else, you actually use the compass, right? Okay, so that was number two. However,
1: however, people's people's impressions of you can go straight through the floor if you bring the wrong kind of compass though.
2: Oh yeah, that is true. You don't have to buy an
1: expensive one, but don't bring one that velcro's to your wrist and don't bring one that (laughs) that doesn't have a mirror on it. I mean it has if you just if it's that's called a map compass. Don't bring one of those.
2: (laughs) Yeah, don't you're right. And also don't bring that the spotting (laughs) scope compass one too because you don't have a mirror and it doesn't have the clear base plate for you to do anything with a map
0: yeah I, so i now like, feel sh- just, i feel you shame know, you're not gonna be
2: able to draw a map
0: because the Did two you- compasses in my uh in my safety gear are a map compass and a sighting compass. <laughs> I I personally don't think there's anything
2: wrong with the sighting compasses. I know what you're getting for Christmas then, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next one, something to write with and something to write on. Mm-hmm. Now this, there, there's a million ways you can cut it on this one. Some people like quality, fine, you know, pencils and, and, uh, pens and stuff like that for drawing and everything. Cause they're really precision individuals, but I'm like, a Brute out there. So the dirt destroys my pencils real fast. So I have maybe one quality pencil, and then the rest of them are just the big school junior high mechanical pencils that, you know, they're. Nothing special, right? And then the notebook. But, oh, well, go ahead. I'm
1: willing to bet that the only thing in Stephen Wagner's backpack besides water is a leather roll-up thing <laughs> with pens, and then a, like a case with different uh, inks in it, and then like a folding writing table that he sets out on the on the field, and then he sits down at this writing table, <laughs> and dips his. Pen. <laughs>
2: uh, oh my gosh! Like Meriwether right? like ready to survey. <laughs> Oh my gosh! And this is what He's happens when you come don't show to up to the show. After that. that's what happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so but notebook, I would say also what, with pens- it- oh, sorry,
0: with pencil, I would make sure it's it's mechanical. Don't bring a wood pencil. There's no. There's not going to be a pencil sharpener out there. A cheap <laughs> mechanical pen- Mechanical pencils are the way to go. Don't bring. Uh, yeah. You know, you're not going to be c- carving it with your pocket knife or anything.
2: You're right about that. I have survived with a wooden pencil before, though, out there, and it's pretty annoying. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, you can make it through a day if all you're doing is writing notes, but you can't really draw with a wooden pencil because you're right. It's not going to sharpen it fine enough for you to be able to draw anything. So, you know, what's the Yeah. Use? plus
1: they make lead. They make lead for the mechanical pencils that is uh, embedded with nano diamonds. It's pretty strong. It's ridiculous. Yeah.
2: I don't know if we're going to diamond. I didn't even actually, expensive. I put mechanical pencil on it, but I, I didn't even recommend bringing any lead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I
2: should add that to the list too. You need lead to refill your mechanical. <laughs> if you, all right. <laughs> uh, notebook. It does not have to be a right in the rain because it's field school and everything, but just know that you will use your hand to write, not your thumbs to text or mm-hmm. whatever. And you will actually need something to write on. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So the next thing I had on the lift and, and like I said, a lot of this stuff, It's just stuff that if you have it, people will be impressed or it also shows that you're serious or also that you actually are going to do something, you know, uh, further. I put a line level on there and measuring utensils. So a line level is a tiny little thing that's about a dollar. But when you need it, you need it. And half the time, everybody else has them, too. So I remember field schools many times. Every dig kit was supposed to be stocked with X amount of tools. And within five seconds, they're lost or gone. And then we're down to just four or five dig kits that have a line level in them. And you're walking all the way across, the old, you know, farmstead to try and find one of them because some of them are broken, some of them are this or that. And then another person is going to use it for the next three hours to teach their students how to draw the So just if you have it, it's about $1.97. It's in your pocket. Wait until all the company stuff breaks and then pull yours out and use it. Mm-hmm. The same thing with the uh, measuring utensils, right? So there's a whole wide range of different stuff, tape measures, stick rulers, all this other stuff. If you have your own tape measure and it is in metric and standard rule, it cannot just be standard rule. And by the standard or English rule, I mean inches and metric is centimeters. You know, some folks who live in the normal world understand metric, but I do historical archaeology and I always measure all my stuff in metric because everyone around the world knows what I'm talking about, and it's much more functional. And when you're doing math in your head, it's easier to do the math. So –
0: yeah. Unless unless you're doing historic archaeology in the East Coast, in which case you're using engineering scale where you've yep. turned the inch into a decimal yeah. uh, system and, and you need the special rulers which put the inches in, in if uh, doing, decimal If you're
2: doing that, format. just bring a proper compass to Bill and he'll <laughs> let you borrow his tape measure. <laughs> uh, okay, so measuring utensils, nice. once again, that's another one of those, oh, you need a tape measure, I need a tape measure, and everybody's walking around in circles looking for a tape measure. If you have one in your backpack, I mean, perfect, right? And then I also put brushes on here. I assume that you're actually going to find artifacts or you're going to dig or something like that. A toothbrush, another small brush, and another paintbrush that haven't been totally hardened with paint. Just bring whatever you've got out there. uh, But, you know, have some brushes because that's another one of those. Where's my brush? Where's my brush? And then people are walking around for hours looking for a brush. I put quality footwear on there. I think that a lot of people by the time that they're in college understand that they probably should have some quality footwear, but if it's, uh, Bill already mentioned it really well, just know where you're going. Most of the time, tennis shoes are fine. If you have hiking boots, those are a little bit better, but just know if you're digging your clothes will, your shoes are going to get destroyed. You know, hiking boots will get destroyed over time if you're digging, but you can make it to a field school with just some Nikes or some, uh, um, boots. I think that boots are probably better. Your feet will hurt less. You'll be able to dig better. They're stronger and they'll last longer. But I understand if you don't have any money, just go ahead and use what you've already got. Don't worry about going out and getting you know expensive stuff just for a field school. So then I, I just kind of said pants and shirts. I prefer long sleeve cotton shirts. Um, I prefer uh, mm-hmm. you know canvas pants. They don't have to be double knee or anything. But once again, if you've got pants, just wear them out there. And and I actually, I kind of am a bit strict on the pants thing at field school. I know it can be hot. I know you're not used to being, you know, outside or being hot. And a lot of people kind of fold under that whole thing. But just wear pants. Wear safety, pants. Adam. I mean, you, yeah. you should really just wear pants, even when it's totally hot, even if it's jeans, even if it's leggings, even if it's, you know, uh, slacks I know some folks who just wear cotton slacks out there too wear pants
1: Mm. and shirts in the west coast here at least out in the hot summertime in the high elevations and in the low elevations to be honest um, a short sleeve shirt is the first thing that gets you called out as a newbie or somebody who just hasn't learned to wear long sleeve yet
2: yeah yeah I mean I like I said I wear the long sleeve shirts too but seriously like Bill was saying if you're at you know a site that's in a city or something like that, and you're just driving and parking and going out. If you have a short sleeve shirt, that's up to you, but just know you are increasing
0: nope.
2: <laughs> you are increasing your your potential for your skin to get damaged. Because think about it: if you if everything mm-hmm. worked out perfectly and you loved archaeology and this was your career, you can guarantee you're going to spend the next five to ten years outside in the sun. And if you start with short sleeves. Yeah. And those rays just beating down, you're going to be like all the other, you know, old timers that I've seen that are missing pieces of their ear uh, from getting a, you know, uh, skin cancer things taken out. So, just if you cover your arms, I I feel like it's just better.
0: And with like pants and shirts, we'll get it when we get down to the bottom of the list if we make it there. Um, It's also a bug thing. Oh yeah, I'll wait till we get there. Oh yeah, I'll hurry up.
2: (laughs) Uh, But at any rate, I also carry bandanas a lot too. They're (laughs) functional, man. They, I have worn a bandana since i was in arizona even before that i just started to carry them i used to carry them to uh wash off artifacts and stuff so i could actually see the maker's marks and then i started actually realizing they had more than one use uh backpack we've
1: they can be used as a tourniquet or a (laughs) sling as well
2: yeah but you need to know what you're doing if you're doing that
1: (laughs) i mean they can yeah i'm just saying though but multiple Uh, use
2: backpacks on there uh if you have a just a JanSport that you want to just like get destroyed you know, that's the other thing about archaeology. Mm-hmm. You understand that everything you bring outside will get destroyed and that this isn't camping. Not, it, it's yes. not stuff is going to get wet. It's going to get filthy. Just know that it's going to get destroyed. So backpack, if you don't want to spend money on a, a hiking backpack or something like that, just bring whatever you've got. You can probably make it through a few weeks. But if you're going to be doing a lot of walking, it's probably better to have one that has a waist belt and, you know, some kind of support inside. I always wear gloves. Mm-hmm. I used to not wear gloves because I used to just think that I was toughening my hands. And then I had a straight pin go straight through my hand, deep into the palm of my hand, in the screens at a historic site. Jeez. And then, and I had to pull it out. And when you have a you know straight pin go straight through your hands, and then have to work for another four hours, you kind of realize that maybe you should have had some gloves out there. So now I always carry gloves. And I also like the just the the rubber. Blue hand, the ones are
1: just dipped in. Yeah, yeah. The the latex rubber gloves.
2: You could get a bunch of them for really cheap. Yeah, yeah. You can wash them in the washer if you if they get too crusty and stuff like that. You could dip them in water, and if they fall apart, then Mm -hmm. you know, c'est la vie. But if you also have, you're not that much. If you have, it's not really that expensive to get leather gloves either. Too. So, if you prefer the leather ones, it's just harder to grab things with your fingertips if you don't have those rubber gloves i find at least so when you're trying to get pieces of glass or flakes out of a screen it's harder with those gloves on Uh, i also have watery delivery system so either a water bottle and it could just be a aquafina bottle if that's what you want to roll with or you can actually have a hydration pack but however you want to Mm -hmm. go sunscreen is on there i also put on there if you're going to be near the ocean just know that some of the sunscreen uh, that we use nowadays uh, has oxybenzone or ox, I don't know that other one, Ox oct, octanoxate.
1: Oh yeah. Which
2: destroy coral reefs. Yeah. So if you're going to be near the ocean or you're going to be getting in the ocean and you're doing that, just know that those chemicals go into the ocean. Then I also saw another great article that showed that we're absorbing the chemicals from those through our skins. I, I don't really even know where mm-hmm. to go with that, but if you get stuff that's safe for children and safe for the coral reefs, then you'll be safe.
1: There you go. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I've I've heard varying opinions on this. Uh, Both bills, you guys have higher melanin content than I do, and uh, people of similar skin colors. I've worked with Native Americans, African Americans, you know, people like that, and and a lot of them they just don't put on sunscreen. But um, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're that might be true. Like if you're just like a one off, like you're 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 more protected from UV radiation than you know than say I am, but. If you're making a career in archaeology, you're still susceptible to skin cancer. Yeah. Am, I, am I wrong on that? No, you're right. No, you know? Yeah. You're, yeah. you're, you're still you still, you're still at risk.
2: Yeah. And, yeah and and also, you should still
1: put on sunscreen. And
2: really, it's just a matter of getting sunburned. But those same UV rays right. are still going into your skin. So, yeah, you may not be getting burned as badly as someone with less melanin, but you're still absorbing the same amount of UV rays. And then with everything, it's just the individual, the amount and intensity of exposure, and then the duration. So with every, every hazardous substance, uh, you know, one person, two people standing right next to each other get exposed to the same amount of UV rays for the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. One person walks away with cancer and one person doesn't, right? Well, that's just the individual, right? But seriously, I mean, just because you have more melanin doesn't mean you're bionic. And I put on sunscreen I have for years <laughs> and years because I've been out there for a lot of hours. Uh, yes, no, people with more melanin can still get skin cancer. So you're right. You may not be getting burned, which is, you know, the warning sign that you have gotten radiation from the sun. Yeah, you know, that's usually the indicator sure. that other people who get sunburns, they're just like, yeah, I'm going to put on some sunscreen because I really don't want to get skin cancer. Well, the other person doesn't, but both mm-hmm. people are getting exposed to the same rays. Both people are, have the same risk.
1: All right. Well, since one of you has an air raid siren going off, I think uh, well, let's the, go over the last one. The last bug spray. One, bug spray. <laughs> well, that's the, spray. that was a
2: that was a
0: good warning because you know, <laughs> as someone you know who who lives in a, is fortunate enough to live in an area with a wide variety of ticks, as well as the uh, West Nile virus from mosquitoes and a couple other mosquito-borne uh, diseases out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, this is one that's very close, near and dear to my heart. If you're outside in the woods, even if you're not even doing archaeology, um, if you if you're in these areas with that you know invest into your bug spray um but i would say um because i saw it in your list that if you're going to be out in the field uh for a period of time um there's there's like there's sort of the natural stuff and that's good for daily things if you're doing field work you want at least to have some deet now the problem with deet is that it's a toxic chemical but it does kind of keep the bugs away. Uh, another Mm -hmm. one that I've sort of been getting into more recently is permethrin, uh, which is a spray that you can put on all of your clothes and it lets your clothes be protected for about six washes. Um, it's one of those willfully ignorant things. I'm trying not to find out what it actually does to my skin as I'm wearing this clothing that can last six washes and, uh, keep all the ticks away from (laughs) me. Um, but yeah. they are real, but I mean, just in general, if you're out in the field at all, you know, in, in tick areas, do a tick check on the end of the day, get a tick check partner. So to look at the spots you can't see and, and note them uh, when they happen, because uh, tick illnesses are not to be played with. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to talk about like, well, you know, what do I, what do I fear most when I'm out in the field? It's, it's not an encounter with some sort of like snake or a bear or something. It's a tick that I worry about yeah. most out there. <laughs> Yeah. And with that, I would put a a special number 17 duct tape duct tape in the field is a wonder. You can you can fix anything. You can fix anything that's broken. If you're in a really bad vegetation area, you can tape up your sleeves and your cuffs or your shoes uh, to keep bugs from coming up and down. That's always a a pro tip right there for you. Um, But yeah,
1: duct tape is the universal fix it all. All right. Well, with that, I think we have to uh, uh, end the show right now. Bill, any, Bill Bill? White, any last really quick thoughts on this, uh, on this list?
2: Just thinking back to the times that I did field school, but also the times that I've taught field school. The gear is not the thing that's going to make you successful. Uh, the thing that's going to make you successful is listening to what's going on, keeping an open mind, doing your best and, and trying to actually go into this thing with an attitude of learning. Because someone mm-hmm. can come out there with all the gear that I just recommended, but if they have a bad attitude and they think they know everything or if they just absolutely hate it, you know, they're, they're not going to be as successful. They're not going to get the same amount out of it. And not only that, right. but don't, don't go to field school because you want to be an archaeologist. Go to field school because you want to learn about archaeology. 99% mm-hmm. of the people who take an archaeological field school never pursue it any further. Either they realize there's a certain percentage of people who realize immediately they hate it and that they're not going to do (laughs) archaeology field work. They're doing something else, or they're just changing their major. But there's other folks who just realize that that's not the kind of thing they want to do for a living. So it it is a class. Sign up. Take it. Learn what you possibly can from that, and then just walk away with that another experience that you have. And if you're one of the people Mm -hmm. who actually wants to go further, then just go back to the list and start asking for christmas for some of this other stuff that's more expensive
1: yeah all right well with that we will end this episode uh send us your gear recommendations if, if, if you've got something that's not on this list that you think people should absolutely take out there send it over and uh and we'll put it out and talk about it on the next show so chris at archaeology podcast network or all our twitter handles and stuff are in the show notes for this podcast so all right well thanks a lot everybody and uh again we'll see you next time and send us those lists That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash Podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye.
2: Bye. Adios.
1: So, for our listeners, Doug showed up in the last, like, five minutes of Segment 3 recording and said nothing. <laughs> but now he's on, and now we have to wait. I thought this was going to be over quick. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, wow. Epic. I, I, I came in something. just for this, Chris. I came in just for this. We love it. I know. I know. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just seven ninety nine US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.